we are in the book of Ezra, as I've been saying, and uh, we left off in the middle of chapter 9, uh, and not even in the middle, the, the sixth verse of chapter 9. And as you may recall, if you were with us last time, uh, it's a two-part study. So that which we were looking at last week is where we'll kind of continue our idea. And so our sermon title, again, is the idea that compromise matters. Compromise matters. And it'll take us through chapters 9 and chapter 10. Let's go before the Lord as we uh, seek to hear from him. Father, we thank you for the word, and we thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit and the work that he is doing presently in each of our lives. We thank you that the word is alive, not some old sort of book that doesn't really speak to our uh, day and age, but, Lord, it's alive, it's living, it's active. Uh, and, Lord, your spirit is alive, living and active in our lives as well. And, uh, Father, we want to hear from you. And so we pray that you would use the word in a very powerful way today in our hearts and in our lives. You would challenge us and you'd grow us. And, Lord, that you'd bless our time together. Father, we pray for our friends that uh, did not make it out, or, or perhaps some did and turned around even. Lord, we just pray your blessing on them. Lord, we pray your blessing on those churches in our community, Lord, that are preaching the word. Lord, that you'd bless them and keep them safe. And you'd watch over them and use them and do a good work in their hearts. And Father, we just want to pray and ask, we believe it's according to your will, for an outpouring of your spirit, Lord, in our community, and specifically on us as a church. Lord, that we would be drawn into your presence, that you'd speak to our hearts daily. Lord, that we would respond and listen and walk in obedience. And Lord, that we would be used to advance the kingdom of God. And ultimately, really, honestly, I pray, Lord, that it would be more than just our words, though you know our hearts and our tendency to be reluctant to share our words. Lord, but that our lives would emanate the odor of Christ, the fragrance of Christ, and that people would be drawn to you. They would sense that their sins can be forgiven or that they can be in right relationship with God because they observe the work that you're doing in our hearts. Lord, pour out your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we return to this two-part study, we want to remind ourselves of the circumstances that are facing Ezra. Remember, Ezra is going to lead a second wave of uh, exiles back to Jerusalem. They were in captivity for a period of time, and they're returning. Sixty years have gone by. Now there's a second wave of Jews that are going to return, and Ezra's going to be the guy that leads them. And he is the high priest of the people, but he's also sort of like a governor of the people as well, based on the authority of Artaxerxes the king, who said to him, you're the governor. You'll be in charge when you get back there. So he's the religious leader, but also sort of the political leader. And he's freshly returned to Jerusalem after this period of captivity. And as I mentioned last week, no doubt he's excited to get back to the land. That there's a sense we're going to get back there, everyone's going to love Jesus, and everywhere I go they're going to be talking about him, and I just can't wait to be there, and it's going to be awesome. And as we mentioned last week, he gets there, and the first report that comes across his desk, so to speak, is this news that those that had come back 60, 70 years earlier had compromised their faith and had gotten into sin, specifically as it related to intermarriage with the foreign nations. So look again at verses 1 and 2 from last week. It says, chapter 9, After these things had been done, the officials approached me, and they said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Ammonites. Excuse me. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials has been foremost. Now, Ezra's response, as we saw last week, was for him to tear his clothes and to pull out his hair. That's not what happened in my situation. Uh, but for him to pull out his hair, which was, is a mark of repentance. It's an act of repentance to tear your outer cloak and to literally start pulling out the hair of your beard, the hair of your head. So look what it says in verse 3. He says, I tore my garment. I tore my cloak. I pulled the hair from my head and my beard. Ezra is a godly leader. And he was passionate for the Lord. And as we've already discovered in our study, Ezra was also passionate for the word of God. And so here is a man that is passionate for the Lord, and he's passionate for the word of the Lord, and he comes back to a land and he says, people are ignoring the word. And by ignoring the word, they're essentially ignoring the Lord himself. And this can't be. 
And so Ezra repents over this because the people were clearly transgressing the word of God. This was not an instance where they didn't know. I just didn't know that I couldn't do that particular thing. I remember when my wife and I, we went on our honeymoon. It's the first time I really went out of the United States other than Canada, which I don't think really counts. Um, you know, but the first time I went out of the United States and uh, in uh, the Dominican Republic, everything's in Spanish, and I didn't quite know. I was very fearful to go. I was, we were 21, you know, just turned 21. I was very fearful that I was going to step on some grass, and there's a sign in Spanish that says, you step on the grass, you go to jail for life or something, and I wouldn't know, and I would step on it and end up in jail. There is a difference between doing something and not knowing and doing something that you know is wrong, but doing it anyway. And that's what the children of Israel are doing. Again, that's why Ezra uses the word iniquity, or some version says he uses the word trespass. That's the type of sin of willful disobedience. And remember, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 7, and in the first few verses of that chapter, it says, you shall make no covenant with the foreign nations and show them no mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, giving their, your daughters to their sons and taking their daughters for yours. The clear word of God. And the people in Ezra's day, the ones that he's now encountering, they knew what the word said. And they transgressed the word anyway. Somehow, they were able to rationalize themselves. Yes, it says that, but that doesn't apply to us. That applied to people a thousand years ago. Or that applies to other people. Or God understands my circumstances and things are different for me. All these things, they rationalized it. Now notice, Ezra's response to that is he's astonished. He's shocked. Um, he can't believe that this once on-fire group of believers, and this is something that really spoke to my heart, because here were a group of believers that 50 years earlier were on fire for the Lord, and they took steps of faith, and they left everything they knew because God was calling them to do that, and now here they are compromising that, and they're walking in that compromise, and Ezra is astonished by it because they are doing the very same thing which caused the people to go into captivity to begin with. What do they think is going to happen? If it happened before in that way, because of this sin, they ended up with this sin, which led to that captivity, why wouldn't it happen again? So he can't believe it. He's shocked by it. And so he prays. And that's where we'll pick up today, verse 6. Ezra says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but he has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and in Jerusalem. Ezra receives word that the people are engaging in widespread compromise and sin, and he repents. Look at his actions there. It said in verse 3, it says that he tore his clothes, and it says also in verse 3 that he pulled out his hair, he pulled out the hair from his beard. It says in verse 4, he spent the day in fasting, and now here in verse 6 it says that he goes before the Lord and he is ashamed, and it says that he is blushing, or he blushed, to lift his face. Now, that word ashamed or blushed, uh, blush to lift my face, they're words which speak of being humiliated before another. The idea that you did something, you sort of got caught in it, and you can't even lift your eyes to that person. That's the word that he describes how he is feeling. And I find it interesting. Why is Ezra humiliated? Why is Ezra the one here repenting? Ezra's not the one that intermarried with these foreign women and that got himself involved in compromise and sin. He just came back to Jerusalem. He didn't share in this sin in any way, and yet he's the one repenting, and he's the one with a sense of humiliation. Why is that? Well, partially at least, the reason is this, because Ezra knew that all of the Jews were bound together in the exact same covenant. And so the consequences that the Jewish people were going to feel, all of them were going to feel 
those consequences. Daniel, no doubt, didn't sit down, bow down, and worship the foreign gods. And yet Daniel was still brought into captivity, as we read in the book of Daniel chapter 1. All of them were going to experience the consequences because they were all bound by the same covenant. So that's at least part of the reason. And you know, the consequences of sin spill over, even to the innocent. And if God was, would determine to judge this people for this sin, the consequences were going to be felt by far more than those that were actually engaging in this sin. And so Ezra is ashamed of this, and he repents of this. Additionally, I think, though, Ezra serves as a mediator. A mediator is one that goes between two parties, and in this case, between God and man. And thus, he's fulfilling his role as the high priest, the returning high priest of the Jewish people. The role of the priest, and specifically the high priest, was to go before the Lord on behalf of the people and bring sacrifices or lift up prayers and essentially represent God to the people and the people to God. And so here is Ezra representing the people to God in the position of repentance. And he pulls out his beard and he rips out his hair. Question, does sin grieve you that much? Does sin grieve you that much? Do you hate it that much that it would cause you to mourn in such a way? Well, it did Ezra here. And again, Ezra does this on behalf of other people's sin. Not even his own. It's one thing for sin to, your sin to grieve you, but other people's sin broke his heart, and he repents. Now, the easy thing, I think, for Ezra to do would essentially cast these people off and say, you know what, whatever. If you don't want to follow the Lord, you want to go to hell, then you go to hell. I don't care. I'm going to follow him. That would be the easy thing to do. But Ezra is the shepherd of these people. And so he allows his heart to be breaking, broken on behalf of these people. I don't think any of us would be surprised if Ezra would have turned away from the people, perhaps a little bit heartbroken, and then you said, you know what, I know there's a few people that want to go on because they brought it to my attention. I'll just hang out with those guys. We'll have our own little clique, and we'll be fine. But Ezra doesn't allow that to happen. That's part of the reason why we cry out for the lost here at our church in prayer because our desire is not to just sort of abandon those that are outside of the grace of God at this time and say, well, you know what, 150 of us, we're happy, we're content, we got enough friends, I don't even need to know any other people. No, but our desire is to see everyone come to know the Lord Jesus, right? And so we're crying out for the lost, and we want to see the lost come to their senses. Ezra doesn't cast them off. He loves the people of God too much to do that, and so Ezra becomes an excellent mediator and shepherd of the people. Ezra makes the people's sin his own sin. And he goes before the Lord, as it says again in verse 6, ashamed and blushing to lift his face. Notice also in verse 6, he declares the magnitude of their guilt. The latter portion of the verse, he says, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mount, mounted up to the heavens. Nowhere along the way are you going to see Ezra justify the people's behavior. There's no hint of that at all. He doesn't say things like, well, Lord, you know we're only human. You understand us, Lord. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know, what we've done isn't that bad. At least we're not worshiping foreign gods yet. We're just marrying the foreign women, but we're not worshiping their foreign gods. It's not that bad, God. He doesn't say anything like that. But rather, notice what he does. He speaks of the people sort of drowning in their sin. You see sort of that picture there where it says, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. He says there, it's this idea that we are so much in our sin that we're drowning in that sin. I think the same idea is conveyed in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says that the wages of our sin is death. We're drowning in it. We're all encompassed by it. The just deserve of all of our sin is judgment. Death and separation from a holy God. And so in that sense, all of us are quote-unquote drowning in our guilt. And so we need a mediator. One that will enter in on our behalf and appeal to the Father for mercy. Ezra becomes that mediator for these people. And he goes before God and he makes intercession for them. For you and I, New Testament error, whether you're currently a believer in the Lord Jesus or you're thinking about what that will mean and what kind of an impact that will have on your life, in the New Testament era, Jesus is our mediator. 
He is the one that we go to, where we come before the Father and we essentially say, I'm drowning in my guilt. You are a holy, spotless God, and I fall so far incredibly short of that. I need mercy. And Jesus enters in, and he becomes that bridge between you and I. And he says, I gave my life for this one, Father. Look on me as opposed to on them. And the righteousness of Christ becomes ours. It says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, it says that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. If you read that book a little more closely, what you see is it says that Jesus, uh, he went to the to, to heaven itself, and it says that he sat down at the right hand of his father. Or he's on the right hand. I forget exactly. But he sat down somewhere. I know that. And essentially said, it's paid in full. It's done. And now he ever lives to make intercession for us. Now, let, with that in mind, let's look at Ezra's intercessory prayer of, repent, of repentance. As we saw, I said in verse 6, he rightly states the severity of the circumstances. The people have sinned, and sin requires judgment. And the second thing that he begins to do is recount the history of the people and the history of God's response to his people. So again, in verse 7, he says, From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for, uh, for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, we've been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and so on. The history of the Jewish people is not a glowing history. Sin had been rampant, and after many years of mercy and appeals to repentance, where God would send his servants, prophets, and others to appeal to the people to repent, the people were finally made to experience the consequences of their sin. And here, the passage tells us that they were sent into captivity. It also speaks of this idea of utter shame in the passage here. But despite the great guilt of God's people, notice God's response, though. It says, but now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown. Now that word favor, some of your versions have the word there, grace. Favor, grace has been shown, despite the great magnitude of their guilt, that they're swimming in their guilt, that it's above their head, they're drowning in their guilt. Despite the magnitude of their sins, God had shown them favor. And he did so, as we learned, by moving on the hearts of various kings of their captors, that they might be able to return to the land. That's God's mercy. That's God's grace. And what is the response of the people to God's mercy and grace? Well, their response to his kindness is simply to rebel against his commands. So God is being kind. God is showing favor. God is showing grace. And their reaction to that demonstration of mercy is to rebel against his command, to do the very same things that their fathers had done, and to ignore the word of God, and to rebel against God's clear instructions. So picking up in verse 10, Ezra says, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? We have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded, by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, Ezra says again, and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. So God had extended mercy and kindness, and the people respond with disobedience and rebellion. Ezra, in his prayer, specifically makes reference to Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy chapter 7, the, the passages that he is referencing here, and he says the people rebelled, and they were disobedient to the word. But notice again Ezra's humility. Looking at the verses, notice what he says throughout this prayer. He says, what shall we say? 
we have forsaken. He goes a little bit later, he says, our evil deeds, our great guilt, our iniquities. And at the end there, he says, our guilt. And again, as I mentioned, despite the fact that he himself didn't specifically sin, Ezra takes the only attitude that any of us can come to God in prayer with or come to the Father as an intercessor on the behalf of another. And that is this attitude, that we come to God with an overwhelming sense of even our own sin. And then secondly, a deeper awareness of the righteousness and the grace of God. And it's awareness of those two things which result in a person approaching God in proper humility. Remember the New Testament story that you have recorded for us there where there's sort of this self-righteous guy and there's this uh, other fellow there, a tax collector or something like that. And the self-righteous guy comes before God and he, simply, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like the riffraff over here. I thank you that I'm not a sinner like other people. It talks about the other guy who's saying, he essentially knows that he's a sinner, and it says he can't even lift his head in prayer. He's coming with the right attitude. And whose prayer was heard? That's not the self-righteous guy. You see, Ezra comes in the right sense. And any of us that want to come to God in prayer must approach God in proper humility. There is no place for pride when anyone comes before the throne of our holy God, whether we're coming before him seeking mercy for our own sins or for those of another. The 16th century English preacher and martyr, a fellow by the name of John Bradford, he borrowed a phrase from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, and you've probably heard the phrase, in which he said, but for the grace of God, there go I. None of us can truly come to God in any form uh, if we do so with a sense of entitlement or arrogance or self-righteousness or pride. There's just no place for sinners to have that attitude in the presence of a holy God. So Ezra comes, no excuses, as we've said, no pride, just a casting of himself down before God for God's mercy to be shown once more toward his people. Notice though, Ezra's mer uh, appeal is mercy for the guilty, not favor for the deserving. Mercy for the guilty. And he knows he's included in that. Now, what exactly is Ezra's prayer? We have the words there. We can read those words. But what, what is he really asking? What is Ezra's end goal? What is he hoping when all is said and done will happen here? Is it that the children of Israel would simply not experience consequences for their sin? Is that what he's praying? You know, you're speeding down the road or whatever, and the cops pull you over, and you pray, you know, Lord, this is what I'm asking. No ticket. That's what I'm asking. You know, we want to escape the consequences of our sin. Uh, is that what Ezra is praying? Is that his end game? I don't think that is it at all. In a sense, you, if you want to think about it anthropomorphically, in a sense... Ezra is the one that informs God of this sin. Ezra goes to God and essentially says, hey, this is what's happen, happening. People are intermarrying. Now, I know that God knows all things here. But if you want to think about it in human terms, if Ezra just wanted people to get away with their sin and not get in trouble for it, then he would have never told God about it to begin with. But he goes to God and he informs, informs God. Ezra's goal is not that the people just simply don't experience the consequences of their sin. His goal is that they will no longer be in that sin. And you know what? Sometimes the consequences is what's needed to wake a person up to the seriousness of their sin. And so Ezra's ultimate goal here is that the people would be changed. And he goes to God as the representative of the people, and he confesses their sin. Ezra is not some slick defense attorney that is trying to use any means necessary to get his client off. That's not his goal. His goal is that the people would forsake their sin and that they would walk with God in obedience. And ideally, that would come as a result of the people experiencing God's kindness and mercy and responding with an overwhelming sense of gratitude, which leads to obedience. But as we all know, sometimes that doesn't happen. And sadly, too often, we presume on God's kindness. And we think, well, I didn't get judged, so God must not care, so I guess I'll continue in it. We think because there's no visible consequences from our sin immediately that somehow God must be okay with it. And it's in those instances when our thinking has really descended to that level of thinking, it's in those instances where God has to allow us to experience the consequences of our actions to wake us up. 
to feel the pain of our actions, and as a result of that pain, to be brought back to our senses. And God does that because he loves us. He loves us too much to allow us to remain in our sin. And at some point, he'll use whatever means is necessary to wake us up to our sin. And similarly, Ezra loves the people of God too much as well. To simply petition God to overlook the people's sin. And like the father, Ezra, as the mediator between God and man, he wants to see these people changed. That they would forsake their sin. That they would separate themselves unto God. And that they would walk in holiness. The great need of these people is not to escape the consequences of their conduct, but to be saved from the evil conduct itself. Because merely escaping the consequences of their sin would not be salvation. It would be, as one commentator said, it would be moral shipwreck. And so he goes before the Lord and he asks God, would you give the people a heart of repentance? Why did you repent of your sin? Why did you come to Jesus? Why did you realize that you were in need of a Savior? Did you do that because, you know what, it's time, I'm getting a little bit older, maybe I should mature a little bit, and you sort of reasoned that it would be a good idea to do that? Not at all. Not at all. If you think that's the way that it happened here, you know, you pat you on the head because that's cute. That is not it at all. The only reason why you sit here, if you are a child of God and you believe in the work of Jesus Christ, the only reason why you're here is because God did a work in your heart to bring you to the place where you knew you needed a Savior or you needed something. For me, I remember I was in 10th grade and my life was just sort of, I wasn't crazy or anything. I was like Dan Plansberg or something, you know, <laughs> but my life was just sort of spiraling. And Sorry. But I was sort of spiraling in this sense of like all of these sort of principles of right and wrong that had been established in my life, one by one they were being put off to the side. And I was becoming this person very different than who I had been and was developing into. And I remember the Lord began to do a work in my heart and drawing my, my heart and essentially kind of bringing me to the place of, is this the life you want to live? Is this the person you want to be? Now I can look back and say God was drawing me to repentance. He was bringing me to the place, showing me my need, and that he alone was the one that could meet that need. He could be my savior and wash me and cleanse me and set me on a new path altogether. That was God. And God is the one that Ezra is crying out to, and he says, Lord, change the people's heart. Give them a heart of repentance. Reveal to them their sin. Bring them into your presence that they know, man, you, God, you are so holy, and we fall so short. He doesn't make any excuses for them, that their situation is different from others. He doesn't paint any picture of circumstances that make the compromise understandable. He doesn't point to past generational sin and say, you know what, it's because we grew up in this particular way and thus it should be tolerated or overlooked. He doesn't do any of those things. There's an expression that the commandments of God are the enablements of God or enablement of God. If God sees fit to command or direct his people in anything, God will empower his people with strength to obey. That's just the way the principle works. He's not going to ask you to do something that is impossible for you to do. Now, you're going to have to rely on him for the strength to do it, but the commandment of God is the enablement of God. And I'll be honest with you, I think that is very good news. Because as I look at the magnitude of my sin, just the deep down, built in to every part of who I am and what naturally comes out of me when I have to respond in this circumstance or that, to know that God can free me of that and do a work in that is incredibly good news. And so I hope you're encouraged by that truth as well. Now let's go on to chapter 10. And beginning in verse 1, it says, While Ezra prayed and he made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Now the tense there of the verse indicates that Ezra kept praying and kept making confession. That he kept weeping and that he over and over and over again cast him down ultimately before God. And following the lead of their pastor who keeps praying, keeps making confession, or keeps, keeps weeping and again and again casts himself down, the people are broken over their sin. It's interesting to compare chapter 9 to chapter 10. These were people that had previously followed some of their leaders into sin, and now they're going to follow their leaders 
into repentance. And this is no mere act of repentance. The people are broken over their sin. They're weeping bitterly, as the verse says in verse 10, chapter 1. And that's a word which means to wail aloud with great humility. God had moved on them, and by his Holy Spirit, he had caused them to realize their incredible need for a Savior and how far short they fell of a holy God. Ezra had cried out to God for his mercy, and God responded, didn't he? And God, in his mercy, gave the people a heart for repentance. An intense conviction came over the people for their sins, and that conviction drew, drew them or, or drove them to repentance. They became over, overwhelmed with the magnitude of their sin, and they cast themselves upon the mercy of God. Let's pick up in verse 2. It says, And then Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, he addressed Ezra. He says, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, Ezra, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Now, Shechaniah, we know from the, the book itself, is one of the priests that returned with Ezra. So Shechaniah didn't do this either. He's being informed about what is going on as well, and he didn't participate in this sin. But just like Ezra, his mentor, he identifies with the people that he was going to lead, and he confesses their sin as his own sin. Again, look at verse 2. He says, we have broken faith with our God. We have married foreign women. And you know, we praise the Lord for godly mentors that set the example for others to emulate. Notice also what Shechaniah does. He reminds Ezra of two things. The first, he remind, and Ezra probably knew all this, but he reminds him, number one, despite the people's sin, despite the people saying, you know what, God, yeah, we heard that. We've read the old stories. We know what happens when people do that. We know what Moses said about us not doing that, but we don't care. Despite the people doing that, he says to them, there is hope. Even now, there is hope for Israel. Shechaniah dares to count upon the mercy of God. Shechaniah is confident in the character of God that if the people repent, that the Lord will respond with forgiveness. And in boldness, he says, based on what I know about who God is and God's character, I'm going to tell you this truth, Ezra, that if there is hope, he says, for Israel. He knows that God's kindness, uh, and what he does know, I should say, is God's kindness has stirred the people already toward brokenness over their sin. So do you have a loved one that has gone astray? Maybe some of you as parents uh, that are, have older children, adults, so to speak, and they've gone astray. And you love them and your heart is broken over them. For some of us else, maybe there's just people, all of us really probably, there's people that we care about that we'd love to see come into a relationship with Christ for forgiveness. How do you pray for them? Is it just, Lord, please save them? That at work, I guess, and God could use that prayer. But I think the Lord likes when we are specific in our prayers and the Lord is working in our hearts. I, I would suggest a couple of things that you can pray. Number one is that God will bring a heaviness upon their spirits over their sin. That he will flood them with an overwhelming sense of their need. And then secondly, that he would drive them to the place where they will cry out to God for mercy. That they'll discover that there's nowhere else I can go. And they'll cry out to God for mercy. Because here's the thing, when people see the need, their need, then you'll be able to step in and point them to a savior. And you'll be able to inform them that there is hope for forgiveness. So the first thing Shechaniah does is remind Ezra that there is hope for repentant Israel. And then the second thing he reminds Ezra of is his responsibility to call the people to acts of repentance. To not just say that they are sorry, but to demonstrate their sorrow in action. It's good, certainly, to experience sorrow of our sin. But for that sorrow to be true sorrow or godly sorrow, as the Apostle Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians, it has to be accompanied by a change of action. So let me ask you now, let's, let's think personally here. Has God been convicting you of an area of sin of late? Has God been convicting you of an area of sin 
of late. He should be. That's what he does. He convicts us of our sin. And if there's nothing going on in your life here, then you got to wonder, am I growing, Lord? Am I continuing to move forward? Or have I just sort of stagnated in my walk? Or have I, like these guys, drifted back into an area of compromise? Has God been convicting you of an area of sin? If he has, what has been your response? Has it been simply to acknowledge, you know what, God, you're right. I'm really sorry about that. But then no change at all? To only go away and make no changes to what the Lord has sort of impressed on your heart? That's not godly sorrow. For you just to agree with God and say, yeah, you're right, I shouldn't be doing that. That's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow ends with result. It comes with change. Now, I'm not saying or trying to imply that once we repent of something, we'll never go back to it again or we'll never stumble in that particular area again. The reality is that that area may trip us up again and again, even after we have repented of it and began walking in a way that stood opposed to it. But what I'm talking about is this. It's about taking the necessary steps to walk in godliness. So if God is telling you, for instance, to mend a relationship, have you picked up the phone to call that person? Or have you just simply said, you know what, God, you're right, I should give them a call. Godly sorrow picks up the phone. Have you cut the internet or cable that is providing you with that avenue of sin? Or did you simply acknowledge that you were involved in sin? Now let me make this point. Repentance is essential to the Christian walk. It's essential at the start of our Christian walk and every day thereafter. I love, there's a quote by Charles Spurgeon in which he says, perhaps you have the notion that repentance is a thing that happens at the beginning of your spiritual life. It's something that has to be got through as one undergoes a certain operation and then there is an end to it. If so, Spurgeon says, you are greatly mistaken. Repentance lives as long as faith lives. Towards faith, I might also call it a Siamese twin. We shall need to believe and to repent as long as ever we shall live. And so leading the people toward repentance, Shechaniah, he says in verse 2, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives. There's hope for Israel if the people forsake their sin. But for them to continue in their sin would belie their confession. True repentance always leads to a change of direction. Also notice there in verse 2, this word that we draw our attention back to again and again as we study the word, it begins with the word, therefore. They had reminded themselves what the word had to say about this, and now it was on them to respond. The book of James, it tells us that we are to be doers of the word. Not, only, not merely hearers of the word. So what has God been telling you? Today's the day to act on it. For these believers, he had been telling them that the act of repentance was to put away all these wives and children. Now you read that and you say, wow, that's heavy. Walking in repentance is never easy. But I, I will let you in on this secret. It's never going to get any easier either. So if God's calling you to it, the longer you put it off isn't going to make it easier as you get further down the road. In fact, it's probably going to get harder as you get further down the road because you'll be more entrenched in that particular sin. Walking in repentance is never easy. Now, related to these guys here, they're being called to put away their foreign wives and in some cases their children. Now, the scripture makes it clear that God hates divorce. His word tells us that. It says, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. But in here we have an instance, we have a situation of the lesser of two evils. And so all of the marriages with the foreign women were annulled. And sadly, unless, of course, the women said, no, I want to be a follower of Jehovah. I want to join the club like Rahab did and Ruth did and all these others did. I want to repent in that particular way. But if they do not, the marriages with these foreign women were annulled, and in even some cases, the children of the unions were put away. And again, sin has ramifications even upon the innocent, our children. But drastic measures were necessary here in the book of Ezra if God's holy people were to indeed be a separate people. And so Ezra rises up and he leads the people in the taking of an oath. Look at verse 5. Ezra arose, he made the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said, and so they took an oath. An oath that they would obey the word and walk in repentance. And specifically note, it starts with the leaders. As go the leaders, 
so go the people. And so it begins with them. Continuing in verse 6, Ezra withdrew from before the house of God. He went to the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliashib, where he had spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, that all of his property would be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Well, that would certainly motivate you to attend, wouldn't it? Come to the prayer meeting or you forfeit all of your property, I'll be there. How do I get there? What time? All right, and so uh, Ezra here. Remember, Ezra was given great civil authority. King Artaxerxes had said to him in chapter 7, whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, Ezra, let judgment be strictly executed on that particular person. So he was given great civil authority. Some people say this was over and above what he should have been doing. But regardless, now he's putting that authority to good use. Verse 9, then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days, as they were told. It goes on, it was the ninth month and the 20th day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Now, the ninth month in the Jewish calendar essentially falls somewhere between December and January of our calendar. And over in Israel, then as well as today, the temperatures would pretty much drop down to around the 40s, sometimes even lower than that, and also the rains would come in. So you can imagine a group of people that are gathering out in the open air in 40-degree weather, 35-degree weather, with cold rain falling on them. You can imagine that they're going uh, to tremble. And, and Ezra specifically says that in verse 9, because of the heavy rain. But that's not the only reason why they're crying, or uh, trembling, I should say. They're also trembling, if you look at verse 9, because of this matter. Ezra had prayed that God would give the people a heart of repentance, and the people have a heart of repentance. God is doing work within them where they're broken over their sin. They're crying over their sin. They're trembling before God because of their sin. They were brought before the Lord in repentance and a determination to obey. Verse 10 goes on, And Ezra the priest stood up and he said to them, You've broken faith and you've married foreign women and you've so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Though the moving of God's Holy Spirit was clearly evident amongst these people here, it was important for them on their part to carry through with this act of separation. Because if not, this work would only be a partial work. And as we know, partial obedience is really disobedience. And so they're going to have to follow through. Verse 12 says, Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we have done what you said we've done, and we must do as you have said we should do. Then they go on, they say, But the people are many, and it's the time of the heavy rain, and we can't stand out here in the open uh, in the heavy rain. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Now you might look at that and you might think it's a stall tactic or something. Well, we'll get back to in a few months. It's raining, you know, or something like this. But this isn't really a stall. Uh, it's not at all a stall tactic on their part. It's simply to provide them with the time to go back and examine the women and determine which, if any, truly decided like Ruth and Rahab that they wanted to follow the Lord as well. Additionally, what this additional time does is it allows them to make appropriate preparations for the separation. So these women weren't going to be sort of cast out, and in some case children weren't going to be cast out and sent out, if you will, empty-handed to fend for themselves. And so preparation needed to be made to provide for them financially and for provisions and a place perhaps for them to go and to dwell. But it says here, overwhelmingly, the people agree to this. Now, four names are listed of guys that don't agree to this. We have their names there. We should all draw attention and shame them or something. I don't know. But it says, only Jonathan, the son of Azahel, and Jaze, whatever, the son of Tikva, oppose this. And Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, 
supported those two as they opposed it. Now, I sort of said that these guys are bad guys, but we don't really necessarily know if they opposed the delay or they opposed the idea altogether. Let's hope they just simply oppose the delay and they're zealous about the things of the Lord and say, let's do it right now or something like that. But they oppose this in one way or another. Their names are mentioned there. Then verse 16 says, Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. And now beginning in verse 18, we have a list of those that had married foreign women. Verse 18, we start with the priest. So I'll just read a portion of it. It says, Now there were some of the sons of the priest who had married foreign women. Messiah, Eleazar, Jerib, and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brothers. And it says, They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and they offered a guilt offering. And it goes on and it lists a few more names as well. Then, starting in verse 23, you have the list of the Levites. Those Levites that took foreign wives as well. It says, of the Levites, verse 23 and 24, Josebed, Shimei, Kaliah, Pethiah, Judah, and Eleazar, as well as some of the singers. And then finally, starting in verse 25, you have a listing of the men from the general congregation that found themselves in this area of sin. Now, if you took the time, got a calculator, an abacus or something, and you counted up how many people are listed there, there are, if I did the math correctly, there are 111 people that are listed there. 17 priests, 10 Levites, and 84 people from the general congregation. Now remember, that's 111 people out of perhaps 60,000 people that made up the congregation. And I based the number 60,000. Remember, 50,000 came back in the first wave, Another five or 6,000, we estimate, came back in the second wave. And so, you know, you, you, you do the math, and that's about 55, 60,000 people in the land. I suspect it's even more than that, you know, because what's the natural order of things? You move into a new town, you get a nice little house, and then you fill the house with kids or something like that. So we might be talking about 100,000 people, 125,000 people that are gathered. And so out of 100,000 people, 111 of those people have gotten into this sin. Now you do the math and you carry the one and you divide by the numerator. That's 0.1% of the congregation is intermarrying with the foreign women. 0.1%. Now let's honestly all ask this question. Isn't this quite a big deal over 0.1%? I mean, we got two chapters of the Bible that are devoted to 0.1% of the congregation. Doesn't that seem to be a little bit extreme? Doesn't that seem to be like something that you're getting all worked up over something that doesn't really matter? It's 0.1% of the population. Well, it does matter because compromise matters. And compromise has consequences that go beyond just those that are involved in sin. We read in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 7, the story of the sin of Achan. In that instance there, there was one man, man, amongst four million it is estimated one guy that gives in that compromises and that sins and the four million people experience the consequences of those sin that's where we get the phrase there's sin in the camp there's sin in the camp and sin in the camp will affect those that you love sin in the camp will affect your spouse sin in the camp will affect your kids it'll affect your co-workers it'll affect your church and it'll affect the community that we live in. And why? Because compromise matters. Now, to close a book with a list of 111 names of sinners is not the most exciting way to close out a book. I suspect that if modern day an editor would have lopped off the last two pages, people get the idea. They don't need to know the nitty gritty. They don't need the names here. But you have 111 names of people that rebelled against God and their names are listed in Scripture. Again, not a great way to end a book. But I would suggest to you, looking at it from the angle of disobedience and rebellion and listing their names, that's one way you can look at it. But I think there's another way that we can look at this listing of 111 names, a different angle. And rather than looking at them as men that were found guilty in their sin, perhaps instead we can see them as a group of men that took a step of faith 
in response to the conviction of God that he brought upon them for their sin. I appreciate looking at it that way a whole lot more. These are guys that felt the conviction of God and they responded to that conviction despite how hard it was going to be to do so. And as a believer, some 3,000 years later, that is trying to do that on a regular basis, hear the voice of the Lord and respond in obedience and walk in obedience, I'm encouraged by their acts of faith and their steps of faith. And I would suggest to you that this is a cause of rejoicing and not sort of putting it aside and saying, oh, I don't want to think about it, you know, people that were sinned. It's a cause of rejoicing because it tells you and I, you can do it. God can reveal an area of sin in your life as well, and with it could be all the challenges that come with it where you say, I don't think I can take that step of faith. These guys set the pattern for you. No, you can. You can step out in faith, and you can walk in obedience, and you may not know how God is going to work it out, but he can work it out, and you can trust him. These guys did, and God worked it out in their lives, and he blessed them for it. You can as well. Well, we come to the end of our study of the book of Ezra. Yay, when I'm done, you clap later. The people had experienced the consequences of their sin, and God in his mercy had drawn them back to himself, and he had stirred their hearts to step out in faith. And after studying a book like this, I, I don't think we can help but ask the question, what is God stirring each of us toward? What areas of faith is he prompting us to step out in? And then I think the very good question to follow up with it is, what's holding you back from doing so? What's been keeping you reluctant to step out of the boat and walk on the water as Peter did? And I would just suggest to you, on all of us, and myself certainly, we should go for it. And we should see what God might do with our step of obedience. You know, but there may be some of us else that are here that our step in faith is really to acknowledge an area of sin, an area of compromise in our life, and really to give that over to the Lord, to agree with God that you have drifted and return to him, and to commit yourself to his word and obeying his word. Or to put it as we've said earlier, to take the necessary steps of repentance. And I would encourage you, regardless of where you are today spiritually, to heed that still small voice of the Lord and walk, obe walk in obedience to his leading. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your spirit. And Lord, I am incredibly grateful that you do not leave us as orphans. You do not leave us of our own devices to sort of figure out this walk and to kind of uh, get ourselves cleaned up in preparation for heaven. But Lord, that you uh, gave, have given us your Holy Spirit as our guide and our counselor and as our teacher. Lord, you've enabled us to walk in newness of life. Lord, and as we submit ourselves and yield ourselves to the leading of your Spirit, Lord, you create in us sort of that new man, marked by peace and patience and kindness and goodness and love and gentleness and all of the fruit of the Spirit. And Lord, we delight in that truth. Lord, we thank you for uh, the work of your Spirit to call us to repentance. And Father, we pray for any of our friends that are here today with us that have yet come to the place of acknowledging Jesus as their Savior. Lord, that you might work on their heart the same way that you've worked on mine and so many others in this room. You would show them their need for a Savior, and you bring them to the place of acknowledging that Christ alone, in Christ alone, is forgiveness of sin and newness of life. We invite you to do that work. We ask you to please do that work. We pray our prayer in Jesus' name.